everything is derived in the digital currency world from this private key. So if you have someone's private key, you have their Bitcoin. It's as simple as that. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, happy new year. Welcome back. You are back. We are back. Feels good. 2018, here's to your best year in business ever. And to kick things off strong, we are going to talk about one of the most talked about and controversial topics of the moment. A topic that has made a great number of the listeners of this show, I think rich, rich is the word, has made you rich, listener of this show, and has made a great number of the rest of us staring in bafflement, wondering what is going on here. Of course, we're talking about cryptocurrency. That's Bitcoin and Ethereum. You can't open up a newspaper nowadays without hearing something about this. I want to get to the bottom of what's going on here. Is it really an opportunity for hardworking entrepreneurs who are used to doing business in traditional currencies to start thinking about doing business or investing in other currencies? And I have to admit, I'm sure like many listening, I'm very interested, but I know nothing about cryptocurrency. So I decided to call somebody who does. My name is Greg Gerber. I'm an internet entrepreneur. I have a marketing company and it's basically an e-commerce site and we've been accepting Bitcoin as payment since 2013. Now, the truth is we've been thinking about doing a podcast on crypto for a few months now, but with so much speculation, guru types out there, and frankly, it can get a little bit religious. It's hard to know where to turn. But Greg, today's guest, I've been fascinated with him for a while. I respect him. I've had my sights on him for a while to get him on this pod to talk about cryptocurrency. In fact, when I first met him at our event last summer in Austin, Texas, I asked him straight out, hey man, can you come on the show and talk about crypto? And he said, no. So my first question to him was, why was he so reluctant to talk? Let's answer that with a little story. We were at DC Austin. I think Jason Cohen had just given the keynote speech at the the big event. As it usually does, the topic of Bitcoin came up at dinner and you turned to me and you're like, Greg, I heard you have two thirds of your net worth in Bitcoin. What do you think about Bitcoin? Tell us about Bitcoin. I just like froze. Everyone's looking at me. And I did my best to answer that question. And right out the gate, Jason turns to everyone. It's like, Bitcoin is a, is a scam. Bitcoin's a fraud. Anyone who would trust their hard-earned money in Bitcoin is out of their mind. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, crap. All right. And, you know, up like, I don't know, 50 times where we were uh, that summer when we talked about that. So, I don't know. Proof's in the pudding, I guess. Do you get criticized a lot for championing cryptocurrency or talking about it? Yeah. The championing thing is funny. Just over time, you start to do it less and less after you've just gotten the same reactions from people more and more. 
I tell people about it because I'm excited for them to get into it. Like, wow, if you understood what I understood, which is it's so hard to distill like what I do know about it since I've just been in it for so long. But if they understood what I understood, like it could be awesome for them. So like I'm trying to like get them to understand. Nowadays I do I try to do a lot less of that. If people approach me about it, I'm more than happy to share what I've got, but the championing thing, it just doesn't really work. People people think it's a fraud or a scam because there's so many champions out there, I think. And really people are just excited. Is it true that you have invested two thirds of your net worth into cryptocurrency? Well, the cool thing about the way I've gotten into crypto is that I started accepting it as payment. So I was doing some trading in the very beginning, but I've received my cryptocurrency in $9 and $20 increments for you know over four years. So has that bloomed into a large part of my net worth? Absolutely. But I wouldn't say I like... You know, I had millions in the bank and I took two thirds of it and bought Bitcoin. That's not that's not how it worked. This might be hard, but can you take me back to like the day before you knew what cryptocurrency was more or less? Sure. This was in 2013. I'd just done like six months of backpacking around and I was starting my new business and traveling. And the new business, I was building a tool for helping me trade stocks and track my performance in stock trading. And I was like, man, this is a product that I really feel like other stock traders would like. And I productized it. I did the whole like... What kind of stock trading did you do, by the way? Like, what did that look like? Pretty basic stuff. Since I was 18, I've, always, I've been into trading stocks. Something about the markets. It's just so alive and it's money flying everywhere. And it's like, man, everyone wants to get a piece of that, right? Did you make money from trading? Little bits. I lost more than I've made. I've had winners and losers, but I've, I've probably lost more. And when I started, I just put, you know, my 10 grand into the stock market and I was, I was just trading it. And I had a pretty good system. I came up with this theory about 6% and I called it the 6% solution. And this was actually the product that I was building. And basically the way it goes, is the goal is to double your money. So if you start with $5,000 and you make 6% 12 times, you can double your money. And if you can do that eight times, you can get from 5,000 to a million bucks. So that was the product I was building was to like help people focus on just reaching 6% at a time and getting to the next level and kind of gamifying that, that process. So you're building this tool. This was before you really understood anything about cryptocurrency. What was the impetus? So I was building this tool and I was... I was struggling to market it. I was working my ass off on it all day, every day, trying to sell it. And while I was doing that, I stumbled on Bitcoin. I don't know, just some article or something. This is pushing like November 2013. And Bitcoin was just starting to go from like 100 bucks to 200. And everyone was like, whoa, it's doubling. I read the white paper, the Bitcoin white paper. If you haven't read that and you're interested in digital currency, that is like absolutely square one. It's at bitcoin.org slash bitcoin.pdf. And that's the paper written by Satoshi Nakamoto about what Bitcoin is. And that was his like release into the world of Bitcoin. And it definitely gets a little technical, but the first full page of it is just like why he thinks this needs to exist in the world. And it, it totally resonated with me. And at the same time, I was watching the price and it was going nuts. So that's the first time I bought Bitcoin. And I bought like, I don't know, I think I bought 10 Bitcoins at 200 bucks. And that was like November of 2013. And three weeks later, I sold all 10 Bitcoins for 1200 bucks. 
And <laughs> I thought I was a genius. I was like, man, I just crushed it. And that whole experience, like I completely scrapped my entire project that I was working on at that point. And I said, I'm working on the wrong thing. I need to be in Bitcoin. By the way, those Bitcoins right now, if you had held on to them, that was $2,000 worth of Bitcoins. How much would they be worth now? Today, I don't know. I think we're about 17000 So that's uh, 170 k That's strong performance. Not too bad. And, you know, that would have been holding for, I guess, November 2013 to today. So four years straight. And the crazy thing is when I did sell, it just freaking tanked. And we went on a three-year bear market of nothing happening. Just crickets. So what did you do next? How did it come to that you started to work with cryptocurrency? I discovered at that point that there's really only three ways to start building like a portfolio or start building, you know, your crypto basket, so to speak. And the first was you could buy them. And I had just done that. And that's a great way to do it. But I didn't want to just be like, working on something, taking all my money and buying Bitcoins. And it, it still, I felt like I might not be able to reach, I don't know, the amount that I wanted to that way. So the first option is to buy. The second is to mine it. We could talk a little about mining. I'm not super, I have never really done much mining. It's pretty technical, but I understand how it works. And basically you are offering up your computer to help contribute processing power to the network. And in exchange, you can receive a little bit of Bitcoin for your computer's hard work. That's pretty technical for me, and I felt like it probably just wasn't really for me. And then the third option was I could figure out a way for people to pay me with Bitcoin. And that just made perfect sense. I'm like, there's so many like opportunities in this space. Like, Let's figure out things that people with Bitcoin would want to spend it on, and let's build a company to start accepting it as payment. And that's what got me into it. And I, I had no idea what business I would be in. The only thing I knew was I was going to accept digital currency is payment. What do people want to spend their Bitcoins on? The funny thing is Bitcoin is described in the white paper as digital cash. It's used as a peer-to-peer method of exchange over the internet that should act and transact just like cash transacts in the real world. And there's just not a lot you can actually buy with it. So people really just wanted to like experiment. And you know, nowadays people joke about buying Lambos. But back then, I mean, the reality was... Back in 2013, when the the big boom happened, it was actually caused by the Silk Road being taken down. A lot of people who had been on the sidelines heard, hey, like, you can't use Bitcoin to pay for drugs anymore. Like, maybe we should get in here and see if they're, what the next chapter of this looks like. And so at the time, buying drugs and anonymity and being, like, anonymous on the Internet was a big use case for Bitcoin. Nowadays, there's a lot more talk about how much less anonymous it really is. But at the time, there just wasn't a lot you could do with it. And the way I saw it was Bitcoin is it's also not just a medium exchange, but it's a store of value. My Bitcoins that are in my pocket, I feel a lot safer about them than I do the dollar bills in my Chase or Wells Fargo bank account. Like that scares me all the if you've ever walked into one of those places and talked to the guys there, like they don't know what they're doing. And I've got my hard earned money sitting in their pocket. Like my Bitcoins are a lot safer over here. If I'm going to keep it as my store of value and I'm going to spend it, like eventually I'll spend it on everything. And I've just always seen it that way. I didn't really know like that there'd be kind of chapters of in which it would be used in different ways. I just have always seen it as someday this will just be the same as all the other money. So someday everyone will buy everything. Have you seen some advantages to accepting Bitcoin? 
some people have suggested to me that I should allow people to buy my products with Bitcoin. I mean, it's hard to ignore the fact that the Bitcoins I've received over the years have just bloomed into, uh, I've done really well with like the return on them as an investment. I've kept them all. I sold them all that first day, like I told you in November, but every payment I've received since then I held on to. It's a pretty life-changing reason to want to accept it. Yeah. The second is it, it just opens you up to a bunch of new markets. Like there are thousands, millions and millions of people now actually who have Bitcoin and are looking to like experiment with it and do things with it. And not just Bitcoin, there's now thousands of altcoins and all sorts of digital currencies. And there's no reason not to accept all of them. And then you can exchange them into any coin you want and getting comfortable with it. I mean, it's something that I think we should all kind of be comfortable using. Similarly, that we're comfortable using money. Greg, can I just run some words by you? And from a very beginner's level, you explain to me what they mean? When I try to answer that question, the first thing that comes to mind that I love to do is, is just get, throw it right back at you and ask you, Dan, tell me what money is. What's money? So I guess a U.S. dollar would be a symbol that two people or two companies equally trust and value so that you can exchange a store of value between... I've read more complex ideas that like it's a sort of a representation of debt that you can move around. But I think it's a dollar something that we can both agree that is valuable to us and I can give it to you in exchange for something else. Yeah. And you mentioned trust. Like, Why is it that you trust this money? In the case of the US dollar, I guess, because a lot of other people trust it. That's fair. I read a really good quote the other day. I forget who it was, but he said, what gives people trust in the dollar is the US government, their backing of the dollar and our belief that they're going to you know, protect it and they're going to do a good job managing the economy for us. And on the flip side, what gives Bitcoin value is our distrust in the government and our belief that the government might not be the best way to protect our hard-earned wealth and our value and, our, and what we work so hard for. So that's one way that I like to describe what Bitcoin is. It just it represents money, and money is this kind of very intangible thing, and it's a hard thing to explain but really, it's just like a store of value, and it's a way for us to exchange, like you said. And nowadays, you know, we have like these amazing tools at our disposal with the internet and with technology. We don't need a bank to hold on to our money for us anymore. Like when we were carrying gold bars around, that was that made sense, right? But we don't need them to do that anymore. And in the same way, we don't actually need the U.S. government or the Fed or whoever the hell these guys are deciding what we should do with our money. We can just write very simple algorithms that all of us agree should be the way that money should be managed and let those algorithms manage the money supply for us. So that's what Bitcoin is to me. It's a digital store of value. It's a digital like medium of exchange that's managed collectively by the network that manages it and the algorithms that manage it. And those algorithms are actually what give Bitcoin value. That's another big thing people ask, like, why does it have value? Well, it's Bitcoin literally represents the largest supercomputer network on earth. I mean, that's a pretty valuable resource, if you ask me. What is altcoin? An altcoin? Yeah, an altcoin is a coin that is not Bitcoin. Okay. It's as simple as that. It's an alternative to Bitcoin. What would be like one altcoin that you find specifically interesting? Hmm. Let's give an example. One very famous one is Ethereum. Yes. So could you describe to me, like, given that Bitcoin exists, 
why does Ethereum need to exist now? Why don't we just stick with Bitcoin? So each altcoin, they approach this world of digital currency through their own lens and they have their own value proposition. And that's why they have to have their own coin. They can't just use Bitcoin for their purpose. Ethereum came around and said, hey, we're not actually going to be a digital currency at all. We're going to build this massive supercomputer. They've always said, this is, we're not, Ethereum isn't a digital currency. It's the world's largest supercomputer. And we're going to use the coin, Ethereum, as fuel to run processes on this supercomputer. So Ethereum, they approached it as they're going to be a platform for supercomputing. And you can write code that exists on the Ethereum platform so that anytime Ether is sent to any address, it executes the code that exists at that address. And that's what that's a smart contract. A smart contract is just a simple piece of software that anytime Ethereum is sent to it, it executes the code. It's immutable, which means this code is going to run when the Ethereum gets there and there's nothing anyone can do to change it or make anything else happen aside from what the software says will happen. So Ethereum, they really think about their coin as fuel as gasoline for fueling the processing that's happening on their network, Bitcoin sees their coin as gold and a store of value and a way to exchange. So completely different approaches. So with a smart contract, what sort of thing might that make possible? One of the most famous examples of a smart contract was the DAO. And this was a very sophisticated smart contract that existed on the Ethereum network and they tried to build a decentralized like investment club, basically, where it's just like a piece of software and everyone sent their Ethereum to the DAO. And in exchange, they got DAO tokens, which was kind of like shares in a company or shares in this DAO entity. The software had different voting rights and, and ways to vote and make decisions collectively. And it was this just like centralized entity, but built on a decentralized network that no one person controlled. But it was a smart contract that was just software that existed on the Ethereum blockchain. So another way to think about smart contracts might be like, instead of, you know, in the economy that I understand, you have like currency and then you have like a legal system. And so if I buy your house, like I give you the currency, you give me your house and that's all secured by this legal system. But with a smart contract, you can sort of bake that into like when the money actually gets exchanged. That's correct. In our world, we have to have the court system and the government to like ensure that these contracts that we create, real contracts that we, that we create with lawyers, the government enforces them and, and our, our courts enforce them. In the world of a smart contract, code enforces them. And you don't need a judge to decide that the code's going to do exactly what it was written to do and it'll do nothing else. This week's podcast is sponsored by Refund Retriever. If your business uses FedEx or UPS, they're definitely worth checking out. Because if you ship that way, you're going to know that a lot of these companies guarantee that if your package doesn't arrive on time, that they'll give you full credit on their charges. But the reality is that FedEx or UPS doesn't automatically do that. And that's where Refund Retriever comes in. It'll audit your invoices for late deliveries and other billing mistakes that you may not have noticed. Refund Retriever will then directly liaise with FedEx or UPS to make sure that they issue you a full credit. And here's the best part. Their fee comes out of the actual savings they make for you. So you only pay when Refund Retriever performs. So no refund, no fee. So go check it out. What do you have to lose? 
And a big thanks to Refund Retriever for sponsoring the show. What is the blockchain? The blockchain is the fundamental technology that underlines Bitcoin. So when Satoshi invented Bitcoin, the blockchain technology is where the real innovation was. And the best way to think about the blockchain is I like to think about it like a spreadsheet that exists in the cloud, that there's copies of this spreadsheet across thousands and, or millions of computers. And every computer it has a copy of that spreadsheet and is making sure that everyone else's copy is exactly the same as their copy. It's a ledger. It's a ledger of every debit and every credit and every transaction that happens on the Bitcoin network. And everyone's just making sure that each other's copies are in sync. And that the way of that distributing that across all these computers, that was the core innovation of Bitcoin. And basically every altcoin, Ethereum, everything that's been built since, they all leverage this blockchain technology. They take that and then they kind of put their own spin on it. What is a wallet? A wallet is a piece of software for storing and managing your digital currencies. It's no different than the wallet you've got in your back pocket that's got a couple Benjamins in it, except this one can hold digital currencies. It also lets you kind of see your transaction history and allows you to send and receive digital currencies with other people. And what is a hardware wallet? A hardware wallet takes the idea of the software wallet a little bit to the next level. One of the issues with a software wallet is that it is installed on a computer. And a computer may be infected with who knows what kind of viruses. Or even on your phone, if you have an app on your phone that is a wallet, who knows what the other apps are able to do, how they're able to interact with that wallet app. And you're kind of relying a lot on the security of the operating system. A hardware wallet is a dedicated computer. It's basically a little stick drive looking computer. And all it does is be a wallet for digital currencies. It creates the private key, which is what is kind of your key to unlocking your Bitcoins on the blockchain. It creates that key and it holds onto that key and it never, ever lets go. That private key never leaves your hardware wallet. And anytime you want to create a transaction using your hardware wallet, that transaction is created and signed within the hardware wallet and then exported so that the key itself never has to leave the wallet. A hardware wallet is the most secure way to store digital currencies because it protects your private key better than any other piece of software. There's people creating objects now that, like actual coins that have things that like a seal that you break the seal and you can only break it one time. And it, Can you describe like what these sort of objects are? Yeah, there's all sorts of different kinds of wallets. The reality is, I think the best way to understand wallets is kind of to understand your private keys a little bit better. A private key is just a long, like, 512-character random string of gibberish, like random ones and zeros and letters and numbers, right? And from that key, you can then create public keys, which you can then use to create addresses. Everything is derived in the digital currency world from this private key. So if you have someone's private key, you have their Bitcoin. Like, it's as simple as that. We talked about the blockchain a little bit earlier. Something that's kind of hard for people to wrap their mind around with Bitcoin is that in your wallet, you don't actually have possession of your Bitcoins. Bitcoins are not something that you can have. All Bitcoins are just numbers that exist on the blockchain. They're just numbers on that ledger in the cloud. 
And your private key is what allows you to point at those numbers and say, hey, that one's mine, and I want to move it to this thing over here. So what you actually have in your wallet is just this private key. So anything can be a private key. You can take a private key and print it out and stick it on the back of a coin and say, this is one, and you can, you can send one Bitcoin to an address created from that private key, and you can say, this is one Bitcoin. There's a blockchain, and I have a private key, which I can generate. Yep. And I want to send you a Bitcoin just to be a nice guy. So I go to the blockchain and send them the private key and say, hey, this is actually me. Now I have Greg's address. So I'm going to send him a Bitcoin and the blockchain would recognize my private key and give me authority to do so because my private key is known to the blockchain to be me and will then authorize that transfer and take that coin out of my possession or control. Is that how it would work? It is how it works. You don't actually send your private key. What you do is you do what's called signing a transaction. You cryptographically like state that this gibberish over here was signed by my private key. And the blockchain can tell that this private key was used to create this signature. So the blockchain doesn't know my private key? Nope. Nobody does. Only you do. Because someone could then hack the blockchain and find everybody's private key and take all the Bitcoin, theoretically. They could. Yeah. The cool thing about the blockchain is that it's 100% public information. And that's where people are kind of confused about like the privacy aspects of Bitcoin. But there's no reason to hack the blockchain because it's literally this publicly accessible spreadsheet in the cloud that anyone and everyone can query and search and dig around in if they want to. You can go to blockchain.info is a good place to kind of just dig around and see all the transactions. Let me tell you, I have a worry about this one of my concerns about this is like I was reading some of the papers and this seems like a positive and a negative is that the creators of so much of this cryptocurrency are really trying to take the human touch out of it. They're trying to make it completely technological based on the algorithm. So one of the downsides of that would be with the traditional system, if someone like came and stole all my money from my bank account or ripped me off in a transaction, I could go to a judge or I could go to my bank and say, hey, take a look at this. Like we're both humans here. Like we can all agree that this person ripped me off and that I should get my money back. Whereas if that happened in the crypto world, it would just be over. Like I'd be screwed. I'd be, I have lost my money. Is that fair to say? It's not only fair to say, it's, it's truth. That's absolutely true. If someone gets access to your private key, They've got your Bitcoins and you'll never know who they are and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. And that is something to think about and consider. One of the big phrases thrown around is that with Bitcoin, you can be your own bank. And that's really true. You are your own bank, which means it's up to you to protect your key and protect your money. You know, the FDIC insures like what, up to $100,000 of, of the money in your, in your bank account. That system has never really been tested. But we all, again, we just collectively agree and believe that, that it, it'll hold up. And the FDIC is an American policy that the American government insures most of the banks in America. Not all, but most of the popular ones, essentially, for every bank account you open as an American citizen, the federal government would insure at least $100,000 of it to always be yours, even if something catastrophic happened to the bank. Yeah, and catastrophic nowadays is less likely uh, Bonnie and Clyde robbing their vault and more likely the guys running the bank screwing everything up. Greg, what is a token? 
A token is a, there's so many words for Bitcoin, digital currencies, tokens, digital assets. There's, it's bonkers. But one of the ways to think about a token is we talked about Ethereum a little bit earlier and how it's this platform for creating applications that run on their, on their blockchain. And a token, when you can create a token on top of Ethereum. So there's this standard called ERC20 standard. So Dan, tomorrow, if you wanted to create DC tokens, you could do that as a simple smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain, and now you'd have DC tokens. So tokens, I like to think about them as they're just like a derivative asset of another platform. Bitcoins right now are worth a shit ton of money, so much so that I don't want to go buy a Bitcoin for $17,000. Can you buy part of a Bitcoin? Can I go buy $100 worth of Bitcoin stock? Absolutely. Yeah. You can, I mean, when I started playing around with Bitcoin, you could buy a penny worth of Bitcoin. Now the transaction fees are a little high. I mean, I guess you could do it, but it wouldn't be a good idea. A Bitcoin is divisible up to a hundred thousandth, I believe, or is it like 10 millionth? I have to look it up. But the very smallest fraction of a Bitcoin is known as one Satoshi. <laughs> so Bitcoins are divisible, almost endlessly divisible. And theoretically, if at some point, like that became an issue and like one Satoshi was worth a million dollars, that could even extend how many decimal places it would go without too much trouble. What is an ICO? An ICO is the IPO of digital currencies. So in the stock market, when a new company is ready to list their company publicly and have the public start to own shares in the company versus just the private shareholders, they do a big IPO and they do it through the stock market. And that's when the public can first get their hands on buying, you know, those Apple shares or those Google shares of stock. And an ICO is the same thing, but it's just the, it's the digital currency version of it. So that's the first day that the public can buy the digital currency from the people who created it. I've heard a lot of people making jokes about ICOs lately, but I'm not sure I completely understand why it's humorous. But the essence of the joke is basically like, Anybody can launch a cryptocurrency. All they need to do is write like a 15-page report and call it a white paper, and then they have a digital currency. Is that fair? I mean, is that true? Unfortunately, it is fair because it's happened a lot. Now, it's very similar to the stock market where there's like all these penny stocks and there's a lot of scammers and like things you need to be careful of in the stock market. There's things you need to look out for in the digital currency markets as well. And one of them would be, you know, a group of people, I mean, maybe they even go into it with good intentions. They write a paper where they kind of outline their vision for their coin and the future of, of their company. And they do a big ICO, which is their, they do that to raise money for their company to build that thing. But they haven't built anything yet. All they've done is written a white paper and there's no guarantee that they'll ever build anything at all or, or that they ever really intended to in the first place. So some people have been, you know, scammed basically because of that. But on the flip side, Ethereum was an ICO. That's how Ethereum came into its existence. And you could have bought Ethereum for 15 cents and now it's at 700 bucks. So you can't like ignore ICOs, but you do need to be careful of, you'd vet it just like you'd vet any startup or any investment you'd make. You want to know about the team. You want to know what their background is. You want to know what their technology is and what their vision for that technology is and what safeguards they have in place to ensure that they're going to follow through with what they said they're going to do.
Greg, I'm about to ask you how I can buy my first crypto coin. But before I do, I'm curious, will it be useful to me in any way? Or is it still something that's reserved for speculators and investors, people looking to diversify a portfolio? Using Bitcoin as an investment is definitely, as of right now, it's the number one use case. And that's why everyone's kind of flocking to it. But like I said, myself and thousands of other websites over the years have all accepted Bitcoin as payment. And there's no reason we were talking about like storing our value, storing our hard-earned money somewhere. And there's no reason you couldn't store, like just diversify even just the storage aspect of your money and where you keep it. Some people might spread it across different bank accounts. Some people put some in investments and bank accounts. I see no reason not to have a a nice chunk in digital currency and keep it there. And then that would give you access and the ability to transact with any businesses or in, with other people that do accept digital currency as payment. And a lot of merchants will offer discounts to people who pay with digital currency because it's a lot cheaper from a transaction fee perspective for merchants to accept Bitcoin than it is for them to accept credit cards. And they don't have to deal with chargebacks and some, some other things. Yeah, as a merchant, there's a laundry list of reasons why it's good to accept Bitcoin. But as a consumer, and that was where your fears were a little bit earlier, like as a consumer, some of those protections aren't necessarily in place. But I do think that they're going to get there over time. That's interesting. What's a few of those items on the laundry list? So one, you said, you know, no chargebacks. Yeah. So the second is, and again, it's not great for consumers necessarily, but in the world of digital currencies, the consumer pays the transaction fee. So right now, when you swipe your card at, at Starbucks, they're paying 3.5% or whatever per transaction. So they're upping all their prices to account for that extra transaction fee. When I send Starbucks to Bitcoin, I attach a small fee to it instead. It kind of flips the script a little bit. The second is those chargebacks, as we mentioned. I know my merchant account charges me $45 for every chargeback that I receive. And most of the time, it's just people with stolen credit cards out on the internet buying stuff. So not having to deal with that is a pretty big deal. And then, of course, all the Bitcoins I received have been appreciating over time, which, and I think they'll continue to do so. Now, it seems to me, historically, internet entrepreneurs, there's a lot of people that listen to the show, they're looking for opportunity for their next thing. Now, all of a sudden, you got all these people with a whole bunch of cryptocurrencies, but not a whole lot of stuff to spend it on. It seems to me like there's a massive opportunity to build products specifically for people that want to spend their cryptocurrencies. There absolutely is. And you'd be surprised once you have some Bitcoin and you're interested in spending it, you'd be surprised at all the places that you can. Overstock.com accepted every digital currency for everything on there, which is kind of like an Amazon. I think Expedia accepts Bitcoin. And then there's these new like bridges between the Bitcoin and fiat money system. Fiat money is just normal money, right? Fiat just means normal, right? <laughs> fiat money is yeah, is government-issued, government-backed money. Okay. I'm not sure what the word fiat means, though. I recently saw a website that was basically like Airbnb, but for people who take Bitcoin. So these are the sorts of opportunities that seem to be cropping up everywhere. I actually would slightly disagree with that, only because I remember the very first day I opened up shop with my, my new business on the internet, and I was accepting Bitcoin. I was selling my products and my services for Bitcoin. And my very first customer was like, man, that's awesome, but can I send you PayPal? And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> so 
my very first customer didn't know what Bitcoin was. And within 24 hours, I was now accepting PayPal too. So I'm not sure that that's quite enough of a differentiator. You won't brand it based on that, but that would be a big target market potentially is to say, hey, there's some ideas bouncing around the ether that you think people could have success with. Like how might you approach building a product or a service for cryptocurrency users? Yeah, so I'm building a product right now. That's like my next new venture. We're building a new payment processing business for digital currencies so that websites can more easily accept any digital currency directly to a wallet they control. If I was an entrepreneur getting into digital currency today, I would approach it the same way I'd approach getting into any new market, which is you got to live in that market for a little while and see the problems and see the needs of the people in it and really get a sense for kind of what's lacking and fill those gaps. So for me, I've done over 5,000 Bitcoin transactions with my customers over the years. I know the pains of processing payments in this space. So that's why I've decided like, I want to do this. Like right now, if you want to accept digital currency online, you need to use either a Coinbase or a BitPay or one of these big companies. And with those companies, you send the Bitcoin to a wallet that they control. It's not your wallet. You don't have the private keys to that wallet. And then they will send you the Bitcoin in batches like every 24 hours. And it's just silly. It's like it's people from the old payments industry kind of coming in and just kind of copying the old way, but using Bitcoin versus like, hey, if you've been in this space long enough, you realize like that's not how digital currencies work and we should do it the right way. So I think anyone coming into this space really needs to take the time to get to know it and understand it and transact with it. And they will absolutely see the opportunities once they've kind of gotten comfortable in there. Do you have any sense for why everybody's talking about Bitcoin this year and they weren't talking about it three years ago or two years ago? I mean, what's what's changing? Initially, I was thinking you were asking, like, why do, are people so crazy about it right now? But you're asking, like, why right now? And, you know, money is a very emotional topic. They're going to have more comments on this blog post than any blog post you guys have ever put out. <laughs> like, prepare yourself for it. Right. And you just for, for whatever reason, like Bitcoin is a very emotional topic and money is super emotional, not to get political again. But when people start to see the government acting in certain ways, they start to look for other options. And maybe that's why it's coming back around right now. And I think that's kind of what initially starts it. And then, you know, the buying frenzy of watching an asset go from a thousand dollars to seventeen thousand dollars in a couple of months that just is fuel on the fire and when mainstream media picks it up and it just goes, it goes bonkers. I've heard a strange reaction. Have you come across entrepreneurs being, I don't know if like envious or mad at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency investors for having done so well, while the rest of us are toiling 10 hour days, trying to make this old fiat currency. Meanwhile, all the crypto folks have gotten rich overnight. Yeah, I can see how jealousy can play a role. I mean, the funny thing is it's so it's not overnight. You hear these stories all the time, like Airbnb is like this massive start overnight success. <laughs> and then you go back and you listen to their story like and it took them like years of sleeping on air mattresses in random people's houses to figure it out. But no one no one knows that. And Bitcoin's been around since 2008. Like I've been doing this since 2013 and even a lot of the people I've known or that I know who have been in it in the last year or so, they're not like 
rolling in crypto dough either. <laughs> it's people who've been in this for a long time and really just fundamentally understood the value of it and were never in it to make a dollar. They were in it to like, because they, they truly believe like this is the future of money and the future of storing my hard earned wealth. And I think those people are the ones that have done well. And none of them started yesterday. If I wanted to get started today, is it worth my time and energy to learn? I mean, I don't want to become an investor, Greg. I'm just thinking like, should I get a wallet and should I buy some tokens? I don't have any need for it, which is why I haven't done it to this point. If I were to get started today, like would me and people like me that have been sitting on the sidelines, would we get any value from getting started? I think you absolutely would get some value out of just getting more familiar with using these currencies. Like there's a very good chance this is what money's going to look like in the future. Like very good. There's already governments like Russia came out a couple months ago and said all digital currencies are illegal and launching digital currencies is illegal. Oh yeah, but in a couple months we're going to be launching the Russian ruble as a digital currency and we're going to be taxing it. There's a very good chance that we might start seeing the money that we used to be familiar with all start existing as digital currencies. And understanding how to create a wallet, how to protect your private keys, how to send it back and forth, how to convert it into other digital assets. I think those are all valuable skills that everyone today should become familiar with. One of the things I wanted to do in this conversation is I wanted to get started. I wanted to buy, like take some money, like amount of money that I'm okay with losing. I want to get a wallet. I want to buy some cryptocurrency just to get a basic fluency. Now you've created a checklist or step-by-step process. Would it be okay if I published that at this blog post so people can get started using cryptocurrency? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll definitely, I will link it up. Awesome. Any tips for me while I'm getting started? Things I need to look out for besides unscrupulous ICOers. Yeah. I mean, I recommend that everybody that gets started, just get started with Bitcoin and that's it. Just buy some Bitcoin. You don't need to worry about all the other coins and all the altcoins and all that stuff. You can always convert your Bitcoin into those later. So I would just start with Bitcoin and get comfortable with it. And the very first step is just understanding what we talked a little bit about the private key earlier, just understanding what a private key is and how to protect it. A lot of people will use a company like Coinbase as their wallet. And I think that's okay for beginners and it's okay for smaller amounts, but a Coinbase wallet is not your wallet. Coinbase has control of those coins. And if something happens to Coinbase, something happens to your money versus if you have a wallet where you control the private key, something has to happen to you independently. And hackers aren't out there looking for Dan. They're looking for the, the $100 billion Coinbase has tucked in their pocket, right? What kind of value does a company like Coinbase provide to people that they're willing to take that risk? I mean, one of the biggest is just like a brand name. I mean, they were the very first wallet. I would bet that most people don't even realize that the Bitcoins they're storing in Coinbase are not their Bitcoins. It's Coinbase's Bitcoins. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons. The second is, I'm talking about how you need to be in control of your Bitcoins and how important that is. But the very next thing I'm going to talk to you about is where do you get them? And Coinbase is the place to buy them. So they've integrated the exchange with the wallet. And I think that's the reason a lot of people will just buy it there and then just never move it. Any other things that you want to say to the audience? I mean, I think that the the types of people that are probably sticking around this long in the episode, they're a lot like me. Like, 
I really, these questions are all questions that I have. Like, I don't even know how to buy a Bitcoin until I read your step-by-step process. Is there anything else you want to say to that types of people like me as I get started in this journey? Yeah. We talked about just the emotion of money earlier, and it is. It's very emotional and exciting, and you read these articles, and you hear about your friends, and you see this stuff going on, and it's very lively, and you want to get a piece of it, right? But all the people I know who have done well in this space, they've been doing it over time. And there's nothing wrong with just dipping your toe in, getting comfortable using it. As you see dips in the market, maybe that's when you can buy some if you think that you want to buy some. One of the best strategies, and I I implemented this by total accident, but one of the best strategies is is known as dollar cost averaging your way into an investment. And what that means is if you're going to spend a million dollars on an investment, like break it up into at least 10 chunks, maybe 20 chunks, and do like small $50,000 or $100,000 investments over a two or three year period of time. And by accepting digital currency as a payment for my business, I was accidentally dollar cost averaging my way into what turned out to be an amazing investment. And I think anyone starting today should really approach it that way. And it forces you to not get caught up in the frenzy. And the frenzy, I mean, I saw it in 2013. I'm seeing it again right now. There's going to be lots of bubbles along the way. But over time, it always kind of the bubble pops, but it ends up higher than it popped the last time. That's the hope. Greg, thanks for joining us on the TMBA podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great talking to you, Dan. It's safe to say that this interview gave me a lot to think about. Appreciate Greg coming on the show. If you want to share your thoughts and check out some of the references and resources that we talked about today, check out the show notes at tropicalmba.com slash crypto. In fact, we're preparing a blog post on the topic It basically, with Greg's help, is going to outline those steps that you can take if you want to get involved in the cryptocurrency game. It's going to be really simple. We'll email it out to subscribers of this blog. You can check it out at tropicalmba.com slash crypto. Also, we'll be linking up to a blog post that Greg has prepared on the topic. So there's a lot there. Plus, we can hear your thoughts about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and all the other stuff talked about in this episode there in the comments. Thanks for listening again and a big happy new year to all TMBA listeners wishing you a very productive and successful 2018. We are going to be here in your earbuds every Thursday morning. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.